Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Julia Azari, professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Wallner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. Today, we're happy to welcome Seth Maskett. Seth is a professor of political science and the director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. He works on political parties, campaigns and elections, and state legislatures. He's the author of many books, Learning from Loss, published by Cambridge in 2020, The Inevitable Party, which came out in 2016, No Middle Ground, 2009, and is a co-author on a recent textbook on political parties. And we've also worked on a number of things together, um, including the the blog Mistress of Faction and a recently published paper in the forum on Obama's leadership in the Democratic Party. He's also currently working on a book project examining the Republican Party's interpretations of the 2020 election and its preparations for 2024. Welcome, Seth. Thanks so much for having me on. So I want to get us started right away talking about internal party politics, which you have devoted your your career to studying. I want to actually just get started by talking about what you did in, in your most recent book, Learning from Loss, and kind of what was the motivation behind that book, and how is that informing your current project? Sure, I'm happy to get into that. So the idea of learning from loss, I was really interested in catching a political party in the act of making a decision uh, about a presidential nomination. Obviously, we have, you know, there's plenty of good books about the decisions that parties make, about, you know, what they look for in, in picking nominees and, uh, you know, what the sorts of things they do to help that person or, or constrain that person. But they all sort of assume some sort of a conversation that happens prior to that, where different people within the party evaluate the candidates. They look at how they perform. They try and get a some sort of estimation of whether a candidate could win in the general election and how closely that candidate would stick to party priorities once that person's in office. And I wanted to see what I could do to actually capture that conversation and listen in on that among a lot of people within the party. What I ended up focusing on a lot was um, narratives about the 2016 election. So starting pretty shortly after the 2016 election, I, I spent a lot of time visiting early contest states Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, South Carolina, and Nevada, to talk to people, you know, Democrats who are often involved with these early contests, and first ask them why they thought Hillary Clinton lost, um, and then, you know, what they thought the party needed to be doing about that, and then who they liked for 2020. And that question about, you know, why they thought Hillary Clinton lost, you know, what their, their narrative about that election produced a vast range of opinions. Democrats uh, had a, a lot of different views that there were problems with the candidate herself or that there were problems with the campaign or it was about identity politics or Russian interference or sexism and racism among the media or, or lots more. There was no real consensus explanation, but there was a huge focus on electability and identity. That is, you know, a lot of Democrats came away from 2016 convinced that Hillary Clinton just wasn't electable, either because of who she was or whom she was aligned with, and that a different sort of candidate who came to be Joe Biden was in some ways inoffensive and thus more electable. You know, he, he wouldn't anger working class whites in the Midwest as much, and that somehow he would be more electable as a result. And he really wasn't a lot of Democrats' first choice or even their second or third choice. 
But nearly all Democrats ended up agreeing that they thought he could beat Trump. And that was overwhelmingly the most important thing to them. Activists usually care somewhat about electability, but they were overwhelmingly prioritizing it in 2020 uh, over policy and all you know other things uh, that they usually care about in nominees, just way more than they normally do in, in other election cycles. Interesting. So you're working on this, the Republican version of this right now, right? What are you finding about how Republicans are thinking about 2024? So yeah, my idea was to essentially do kind of like a Republican sequel to the Democratic book. It's a different project. I'm not yet sure the title. I'm thinking maybe like The Elephant in the Room or Thank You, Sir, May I Have Another or, or something like that. But I'm still interested in kind of the basic question of like, what did Republican activists learn from Trump's loss in 2020? And, and what does it lead them to do going forward? For one thing, it's different for a number of reasons. One of them is that I'm not totally sure like on the ground political activists are the right people to be talking to. Um, or if they are, I'm not sure I'm talking to the right ones. Um, but there's still this sort of basic question out there uh, of whether Republicans should be sticking with Donald Trump. And you know, some clearly feel that Trump in some ways cost them the presidency in 2020 and may have even cost them the Senate. And that maybe they should be shopping for someone else. So I'm trying to identify the people who will be making this decision or are at least struggling with it in some ways. You know, there's a lot of good books out there about the modern Republican Party, whether focusing on an embrace of authoritarianism or white nationalism or conspiracy thinking or its approach to policy, its deviations from democratic norms, whether Trump remade the party or he was sort of their logical consequence and, and so forth. There's not much out there looking how this party actually behaves as a party and how it makes decisions. And so I'm trying to understand that. And I'm looking at a few different avenues of this. I'm looking at the role that local party chairs and activists are playing in, in making decisions and in radicalizing the party. I'm looking at the role that the media, uh, especially Fox News, play in the party's governance and the party's decision making. And just generally how party members are, are thinking about uh, presidential candidates and interpreting. Uh, 2020. So I want to ask more about the kind of how power flows within political parties in, in a bit, but I'm begrudgingly going to let James talk. <laughs> Thank you for your generosity and your graciousness, Julia. Now, this is really interesting. And I wanted to ask a, a quick question, Seth. Um, and thanks for, for joining us. And I'm a big fan of your work. I highly encourage our listeners to to check it out. But, you know, we've been talking a lot about the lessons we learned from loss uh, in presidential contest. And my question, I think, applies to that, but it especially applies to lessons from congressional contest and specifically party primaries. And I, and I guess my question, to be just succinct here, is to what extent do, com do competing party factions weaponize the idea of or competing explanations for losses, right? And I, I'm thinking back to the party primaries and between establishment picks and more conservative uh, Tea Party Republicans around 2010, 2012, 2014, and the narratives that come out of those, if one candidate wins versus another, are used to try to make, at least in my experience, or used to try to get a leg up on their competition within the party. And first of all, does that make sense? And are you seeing that also with regard to the presidential contest, like what you've been talking about with Clinton and Trump? So I think that is a, that's a great observation. If, if I'm understanding right, um, I, I think a great example of this is what we saw among 
Democrats right after the November election in 2020. There was sort of an interesting dynamic going on right after the election day in that it was a few days before we actually knew the results of the presidential race, but we immediately knew a number of congressional results and Democrats immediately entered circular firing squad mode because uh, they basically underperformed. They'd underperformed the polls. Democrats said they hadn't lost control of Congress, but they had lost you know, some of their edge and uh, the size of their majority. And it was immediately uh, you know, a, a huge amount of blame going on, where you had more moderate Democratic incumbents saying that you know, clearly the problem was that they were being perceived as too far left, they were too woke, uh, there were too many Democrats talking about defunding the police, and that that was hurting moderates. And then you had others on the left who were pushing back uh, at the moderates, uh, particularly um, uh, AOC, saying, uh, you folks just don't know how to run elections that you know you were under prioritizing certain aspects of this you were not running the same sorts of elections that republicans were but there was you know immediately that and and that is in some ways like a proxy war within the democratic party that's been going on for a long time about moderates versus progressives and you know where they're just in some ways kind of weaponizing the narrative that comes out um when election results differ at all from what the polls predicted and now, you know, that happened very quickly before any sort of real analysis could occur. You know, we didn't actually know why Democrats had underperformed. It could have just been that when probably was simply that, well, the polls were wrong, right? It, it wasn't so much about Democratic campaign performance as compared to just polling. And Democrats have been doing this for, you know, 50 or 60 years, where anytime they lose, that's a chance for the two sides within the party to kind of go to war with each other at the congressional level, at the state level with you know different wings each blaming each other for the loss and saying clearly the party needs to move in this direction or the other um i, I believe republicans do that to some extent as well but I, I feel like that's somewhat more magnified on the democratic side yeah that's useful to know all right I, james i'm counting on you to tell my mom because you used to often say when i was little like you have to let other people talk so i really would like it if you could like give me some credit for that um absolutely i've i've, I've just bowled over by your generosity but no thank you <laughs> Um, sorry, I'm still, uh, for any of our listeners who don't follow me on Twitter, my copious complaining, I'm still getting over a bout of COVID. Um, the brain fog is real. It's very real. The brain fog is, yeah, it's really been real for me. Um, the cough drop is real. There's so many real things. But one of the other things I wanted to bring up here with you, Seth, because we, you know, we had a lot of conversations, some of which we've published as dialogues on Mistress of Faction, as you were working on learning from loss and as the, the 2019 Democratic primary was unfolding in the general, and I feel like there was one point of disagreement between us, which was sort of about who has power in the Democratic Party. And, you know, that led to, I think, some different interpretations of why Biden got the nomination. But do you have a sense that, like, that power flows differently between the two parties? I know you've been kind of maybe in the middle of the, the asymmetry debate. And I'm curious, you alluded you alluded to this in your earlier answer about the Republican Party. Do you have a sense that, like, there's a stereotype the Republican Party is more top-down? Do you have a sense that that's the case? Yeah, this is an area where I'm still struggling quite a bit. And first of all, I did want to compliment you two on your, on your cordiality, both toward each other and me. You're incredibly polite. This is one of the kindest podcasts I've ever listened to. Um, but I did want to, you know, just talking about this, like, who's in charge within the parties. One of the things that impressed me, and I, I dealt with this a little bit in, in learning from loss, is that in some ways we've seen kind of a resurgence of formal party actors on the Democratic side. 
like the DNC as an organization, not as like, you know, not as like a proxy for the broader party, but like as an actual, the Democratic National uh, Committee um, is in some ways becoming more significant within party conversations. It's, it's not picking nominees and it's actually, you know, going out of its way to, uh, to not look like it's picking nominees. Um, but it is guiding the party in doing things like setting rules for presidential debates, deciding who gets to participate in them and who doesn't. Um, it's right now we're seeing the DNC involved with, you know, rethinking the primary and caucus calendar for 2024 and 28. Um, you know, there, it seems to be, you know, having a much more hands-on approach. There's other formal groups within the party, like the Democratic Governors Association and, uh, the legislative uh, caucuses seem to be getting a little more active in campaigns or getting a little more daring. Um, we're seeing Democrats actively try and pick winners in Republican primaries this year. And I still think some of these on the ground activists matter a great deal. That was something I, I think I was capturing in the book where, you know, there were obviously a lot of candidates, like at least two dozen presidential candidates out there. And some of them were just having a hard time finding, you know, uh, reputable people on the ground to help their campaigns. Those had been already absorbed by, you know, some of the more major candidates. So they, I believe they, you know, they still play some important role there. The impression I'm getting on the Republican side is it's somewhat different. I still don't have a great sense of what the RNC is all about in this, um, you know, just how influential they are. I am increasingly getting the impression that the media, particularly Fox News, are just becoming a much more important part of the party than you see on, on the left. One approach I'm taking to this, um, actually, Rachel Bloom, who's a political scientist at University of Oklahoma, she and I are working on a paper right now uh, looking at this year's Republican primaries, trying to get a sense of the determinants of who wins uh, Republican primaries. Is it the amount of coverage they get on Fox? Is it how much they're discussed on Twitter? Uh, is it how much funding they have? Is it whether Trump endorses them? Is it their ideological stances as candidates? So we're, we're hoping to have something to say on that by the time we present this paper in the fall. But, you know, one of the things that I, I keep coming back to, I had this fascinating interview last year with a former producer at Fox News who was trying to give me a sense of how Fox, you know, covers candidates and, and what they look to cover. A story that kept coming up in this and other interviews is when Ron DeSantis got the gubernatorial nomination in Florida back in 2018. So he was running against uh, Adam Putnam. Putnam was simply better known and better funded at the beginning of 2018. DeSantis's approach was a somewhat novel one. He, he just decided his whole approach would be to get on Fox News as much as possible. That is, figure out what Fox News is talking about that day, uh, then contact the producers and say, hey, I'm willing to come on and talk about that, whether it's about policing or whether it's about election fraud or anything else, he's happy to come on and talk about it. With the very shrewd calculation first that um, even though this is a national news organization, a very large percentage of Florida's Republican primary voters watch Fox News every day. And this is a good way to increase name recognition. And secondly, that you know, this would get him airtime in front of Fox News's you know, biggest viewer, Donald Trump. And that very much paid off. He ended up uh, defeating Putnam uh, pretty resoundingly in the primary, in part by increasing his name recognition, in part by getting Donald Trump's endorsement, um, you know, all through this, this media approach. And I, I just don't think, obviously, there are 
left-wing media organizations, but none quite seems as embedded with the Democratic Party the way Fox is with the Republican Party, to the extent that Fox is in some ways like a branch of the party, that is, it, it is playing a role in its nomination processes. And so I'm, I'm trying to understand just how prominent, say, the, you know, the Fox primary is this year, how much it is going into 2024. To some extent, this is a role, you know, this is a story about nationalization of politics and the nationalization of parties. But, you know, it's also, there's a real asymmetry here where you just don't see this kind of thing going on on the left. I just want to make one comment, which is that, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about how we should think about this sort of Trump, Fox News, media, you know, what the role then of, of Republican voters is in terms of the way that Trump was able to indirectly exert pressure on members of Congress and influence nomination contests like you're talking about. But now that I'm thinking about it, the way that we're describing that is like, that's kind of not a political party, right? That is the process if you would ask me in, I don't know, 2010, what is what does it look like when there isn't a political party, right? If we're in one of those annoying interviews where some anti-party person is saying, well, you know, what will direct democracy look like? Like, that's kind of what I would have described. And like, to me, that's very much like if you have a if you have a mass media outlet, specifically one like Fox News, which is maybe another another podcast, that's not just like an actor in a party coalition. That's a very different kind of actor that has this plebiscitary goal of mobilizing people directly, which is the maybe kind of the, the antithesis of the kind of representational coalition building work of what I would conceptualize as a political party. And I just want to kind of make that that observation um, and see if James has any any follow-up here. And then I kind of want to ask about governance and then we'll, we'll bring it home. If Fox News is listening, I think that we could easily, the three of us could come on and highlight the great work that we're doing on our podcast. Um, but preferably not in the morning because that's it's really early those morning shows. Um, <laughs> and I mean, look, if MSNBC is listening, I'll come on there as well. In fact, I mean, I'll go on anywhere uh, to talk about the wonderful work we're doing on our podcast. But no, I have a, a quick question about how this may change over time and what you've found in your research. And if you have looked into this question, but you know, to what extent do the battles between parties and within parties over the kind of lessons that we learn from uh, laws what time have to what extent have they been amplified over time and does this question take on added importance as elections become more central to the policy process and what happens in between elections kind of recedes into the background because it seems to me today we put a lot of emphasis on elections and we then put a lot of you know saying we as policy actors if we're in congress or the presidency and then what happens in between elections um, it seems to have a secondary um, level of importance associated with it. I mean, am I off base here? Do you think that's something that has happened uh, or has this always been with us? I think that, that okay, I think that's right. Um, I think there are a set of lessons, and this may be largely in the, you know, the, the, the kind of modern post-1968 reform uh, era of the parties, but just to to get at what I you know I, I think a way to answer your question is that um, I think the parties have been interpreting elections very differently from each other, and, and particularly interpreting their own losses differently from each other, and that these uh, these interpretations have kind of compounded over time. So if you think about um, the impression I get, and I hope to get more into this in, in the book I'm working on, Democrats 
obviously they you know they lost the presidential election in 1972 with georgia mcgovern they you know huge huge election loss they lost in 84 88 even 2000 and largely interpreted those losses to mean that their nominee was too liberal okay that, that was one of the the major interpretations they came away with and that in order to win in the future what they needed to do was um, abandon some of the stances that the previous nominee had held. So that could mean they needed to move away from the closeness with, with labor unions and with civil rights groups in the 1980s. Uh, they felt that uh, Al Gore had lost in part because of his embrace of gun control and environmental regulation in 2000. And they wanted to you know, not be seen as, as close to those things. Republicans have been interpreting these elections very differently. My impression is, you know, for, for the bulk of Republican consultants and office holders, the last time they believe they uh, lost for being too extreme was 1964 uh, with Barry Goldwater. Then they, they win with Ronald Reagan in 1980. Everyone tells them Reagan is too extreme. They nominate him and he wins anyway. They moderated with John McCain and Mitt Romney in 2008, 2012, and they lose. Then they won with Donald Trump. And so I think, you know, they come away thinking, they don't actually need to abandon anything to win. So I think that, you know, the parties sort of get the sense that where Democrats believe they win when they moderate, Republicans believe they win when they stand for what they believe in. And I think that has an impact on governing where, I mean, Democrats have definitely, you know, Democrats in Congress have definitely moved to the left in recent years, but there is still sort of the, the leadership within the party is deeply concerned that if they're seen as too out of step, they will lose elections because of it. And I'm just, I'm not convinced Republicans believe the same way. Um, there's obviously a little of that. I think a little of that was motivating the recent uh, Senate compromise in response to recent shootings and uh, some sort of modest gun control proposals. But I still think, tend to come away with this idea that if they stand for what they believe in, they will win, um, or at least it won't cost them very much. So, yeah, I, I think you're right that this does have an impact. It builds over time and it does have an impact on governance. So as we transition into talking about governance here, the thing that I want to ask about kind of speaks to, you know, a debate we've been having for quite a while about why Biden got the nomination, which I mean, honestly, still kind of see as more voter dependent, I think, than you do. Um, and and you your research has kind of suggested that there was this elite or activist convergence around Biden. And I'm wondering if the story that you sort of see emerging from your work about why Biden got the nomination has anything to say about why he seems to be having a lot of trouble with staying popular in the coalition that he has? Or is that is this just all contingent? You know, another explanation for that would be, well, you know, Biden is just president at a really difficult time and everyone is pissed about everything. And that's really what explains why he's not very popular and why he seems to particularly be losing among key key groups, among younger voters, um, as popularity slips some among black voters, at least earlier in 2022? Or is there a story about the way that his coalition was formed in the nomination process that tells us why it has been so troubled when it comes to governance? Great question. I think it's, well, I'm, I'm torn on that one. So like you said, I think, you know, in, in many ways, uh, a, a lot of Biden's problems are due to simple circumstances that, you know, you've got COVID, you've got inflation, you've got a war, you know, he's got obviously a lot on his plate. And he's got, you know, one of the narrowest congressional majorities in history in order to deal with it. 
uh, and he's got a swing senator within his party who is basically pro-life and pro-gun and, you know, not really with the Democratic Party on a great many issues. So that, that really limits his range of options for things he can do uh, to respond to issues. But as to whether this has to do with, you know, his nomination in 2020, I, there's some of that. And I think this ties in with your own work on mandates. If there was one thing that, you know, Democrats, broadly speaking, activists and others within the party back in 2020, if they, if they could agree that they wanted out of Biden, it was to get Trump out of office. And he fulfilled that mandate before he was even sworn in, right? So beyond that, there was not really much of a consensus on what they wanted him to do. Some wanted him to pursue a, a pretty progressive agenda um, on environmentalism, on racial progress, um, on economic changes. Some wanted him to simply be a non-insane incumbent. Now, Biden is, I think, he's pretty good at reading a room and finding compromises and pitching himself at the center of a party. But there are some real divisions within the party, and it is uh, hard, if not impossible, to please everyone within that party. So I, I guess my answer there is, you know, somewhat, you know, that is if if the party were more united and, and telling, you know, giving him a set of expectations, what they wanted from him, maybe that would have helped him somewhat in governance. But, you know, it's hard to know just what that would be, given where the party is right now. And also, I think if, you know, if you had a if you had lower inflation, less COVID, and a few other things, I think some of his problems would would look a, a lot easier. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I've got I've got one last question since we have a few minutes, and that has to do with the kind of pressure that's exerted on parties internally. When I think you know, as as we've discussed, both parties have have won and lost a number of times. Politics is very competitive. There's been lots of time for recrimination. I'm curious how you think this affects party coalitions. Like one of the theses that I have kind of tweeted a little bit about recently is that I think some of, some of the divisions between these factions within the democratic party are sort of born in this recrimination. And I also think we haven't talked at all about really about the, the big lie or January 6th in any depth, but I wonder how some of those types of, of considerations might be shaping divisions among Republicans such that they're not just about ideology or about policy stances, but really about kind of responding to the electoral environment and, you know, whose fault it is you um, haven't performed better, essentially. Yeah, this is, uh, it's honestly an area I'm struggling with. You know, one of the problems with this approach for my research approach, uh, if I'm trying to understand from Republicans, you know, why they think they lost in 2020 and what they've learned from that, well, if some of them just simply reject the idea that they lost, you know, that that creates a big problem there. Um, you know, if they're you know, sort of refusing to acknowledge a defeat uh, that sort of doesn't suggest that there's anything to do, uh, there's a, that there's anything wrong with the party or that there's anything wrong with their nominee. It simply suggests that they need to be, you know, come up with ways of overturning elections, uh, you know, more more coherently. That's, you know, obviously a highly problematic um, interpretation of the election. But it's also something that we're seeing. I think that's an area where the, the party is legitimately struggling right now and um, what to do about that interpretation. I'm actually just following Colorado's uh, primaries, but there are a number of actually really interesting high profile uh, Republican primaries in Colorado at the governor's race and the Senate race and a secretary of state race and a few others 
where you really do have a, um, you know, essentially election deniers uh, going up against those who simply accept that Joe Biden won the election. And it's not clear which way these contests are going to go. Um, you actually do see a lot of the Republican establishment to the, you know, to the extent that means something, lining up behind the more moderate candidates in an attempt to actually win a general election in a state that hasn't been very friendly to Republicans in recent years. But uh, the, you know, the election deniers are getting a lot more attention. They're getting a lot more enthusiasm from their supporters. Um, and it's hard to know how these elections are going to turn out. So this is a, you know, this is an area where some within the party are really seeing some set of candidates as more electable than others. And I think they're going to be struggling with that going forward. It's not totally clear at this point what the lesson for the party nationally is going to be. Obviously, a lot of election deniers have already gotten nominated in other states. And just given the overall political wins this year, a fair number of them are going to end up in office. But I'll be curious to see whether Republicans think they could have done better if there were somewhat, uh, you know, less conspiracy minded candidates running um, or if they'd simply say, you know, it, it doesn't matter. We got the candidates we got. And this this keeps people uh, this keeps our voters enthusiastic. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I appreciate that. One of the things I think we like to do on this podcast is really delve into questions that we don't totally know the answers to. So I think the like kind of the public struggle with your own research is, is an important one. And I'll be really interested to see what you come up with as far as Republican interpretations of 2020. But um, it, was, it was great to chat with you, Seth, and we appreciate you joining us here on Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.